though for a good man somebody might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that's so good. Okay, um, Corbin and Matt, I want you guys to rock, paper, scissors right now. Winner takes all, and I'll tell you what in a moment. All right, everybody on this side has to move to this side. I want to group you up a little bit more. <laughs> Matt wins all the people. I just trust that your heart is right now ready and eager to receive God's word, so... Uh, I want you to consider with me, I think we're all on, okay. Have you ever heard a sound that made your spine tingle? Um, some of you have. Maybe you were out backpacking and it was a dark night and you heard a mountain lion scream. Uh, I remember being a pretty little kid the very first time I heard a wolf howl. And I was in hunting camp in, in a wall tent. And I don't have a lot of memories from that hunting trip, but I remember that. And it scared me. And I did not want to leave the wall tent at, in the dark. I remember I had to pee, and I did not want to go out there because there's a wolf out there. And, man, that sound will make your spine tingle. I wonder what it would have been like. down by the shore on the Sea of Galilee at night, maybe close to Capernaum there or along the shore between Capernaum and Bethsaida there, hearing the demon-possessed man crying out. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Mark 5, verse 3 says of this demon-possessed man, he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him, and constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out, and gashing himself with stones. That's a guy in tough shape. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the human voice has been documented to have carried ten and a half miles across open water in a very still, calm situation under ideal circumstances. Also, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the human voice has been recorded intelligibly, to, to speak intelligible words that somebody else could understand, at five and a half miles across open water in, under perfect conditions. Now, from the town of Capernaum over across to the region of the Gerasenes where this demoniac guy 
hung out is four to five miles, depending on exactly where along that shoreline he was. Did the people in Capernaum hear those sounds? They certainly could have. Probably. Did the fishermen who were out in the middle of the sea in the night fishing on a still night hear those cries? Undoubtedly. Imagine the stories told about that guy in the local restaurant after synagogue was over. <laughs> the, the dude that everybody talks about, uncontrollable rage, breaking chains. I mean, imagine the story, like Phil and Ben and you know, they went and they tried to chain the dude up and he just smashed them to pieces and broke the chains and, and those guys are black and blue all over again, you know. Whatever it is, the stories that were told about that man living in the graveyard, actually living in the, the tomb caves in the rock where all the dead people are. This is the stuff that little kids come in at night to mommy and daddy going, I had a nightmare, the demon dude, you know. That's the stuff of nightmares, and, and that's the guy that was living just over there. And then one day, Jesus said something to his disciples that must have caught their attention. Back up to chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. The other side is said so innocently right there, but it wasn't a picnic destination. For the Jews, the other side from where they're going, from Capernaum and up north and around to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, over to that eastern shore, that's Gentile country over there. That's the place where the pagans live. That's the area where the unclean stuff is, like pigs. The other side is like going into the wrong neighborhood in some cities, where the folks who wear this kind of clothing, if they show up in that neighborhood, might get knifed or worse. Oh, yeah, and then there's that demon-possessed guy that lives over there. How are you feeling if you're one of Jesus' disciples and he says, hey, guys, let's, let's go over there to the other side? Why, Jesus? Why do you want to take us on purpose to that place? Not just where the unclean stuff hangs out, but where that there's darkness and it rains over there. That guy roams all over the place, haunting that part of the country. Why do you want to go over there, Jesus? Jesus seems to be looking for trouble. 
And when you're looking for trouble, trouble might just come looking for you. Look at chapter 4, verses 36 to 38. What happens? And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was, in the boat. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Through our cultural lenses, which have been colored so much by naturalism, we tend to interpret everything immediately with a scientific explanation for something. We tend to interpret that storm as a happenstance of nature. And it might have been. And Bible scholars can, and scientists can give you the explanation for how the wind currents work there, coming down from the mountains in a sudden fierce storm can easily come up on the Sea of Galilee, and it happens. Other Bible scholars prefer to view that storm as a demonically energized kind of storm. Jesus is on his way over there, and the powers of darkness don't like it. Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us which one it is. I will say that our naturalistic framework for looking at that makes us immediately go, oh, it's just a natural storm. Maybe we ought to consider the fact that the original audience to this, their worldview, would have been much more open to the idea that that may have been a demonically empowered kind of storm than we would immediately be open to. The Bible doesn't tell us. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. What happens next? Look at the verses. Verse 39, and being aroused, he, that is Jesus, rebuked the wind. I wonder what that rebuke sounded like. I would like to know what he said or how that was done. He rebuked the wind, and then he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What would you feel if you were sitting, say, on the couch next to a friend, and that friend looked at an object across the room and stared at it, and that object began to rise, and then they moved it over and set it down with their eyes? Some weird sci-fi. What would you feel like if that was your friend right there? Huh? What emotion would be going through your body right there? Would that be a bit of an electric moment? I think it would. These guys just witnessed Jesus go, whatever he did, rebuke the wind and say to the sea, hush, be still. And it goes, and they're going, who is this sitting next to me? that even the wind and the waves obey him. They ran away like a scared puppy. 
in the face of Jesus' words. What I want you to see, and we so often do this in this uh, passage, we disconnect it. We talk about the Jesus calming the storm, and then we don't go on. He was going somewhere. He, it started back in verse 35. Let's go over to the other side. Well, they haven't got there yet. That's just the first part of the journey. Okay? Keep reading what happens next. Jesus isn't deterred. He's determined to poke his nose into the wounded bear's den. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Can you picture those scenes from like a battle scene from the movie? I don't care what movie, pick your movie. The battle scene, though, where the hero has to lead the army against the other army, and there's the, the champion from the enemy army, and you just know the whole movie is set up. The hero and the enemy champion have to lock in mortal combat. You know how this goes, right? And they, they lock eyes like across this distance, and there's all these people fighting around them, and, and they just start going toward each other, and, and all these people are coming in you know, to, to fight them, and they just kind of go, psh, psh, psh. and in the movies, it's so easy. But they just knock everybody out of the way until those two lock in combat. There's, there's this sort of feeling that's happening as Jesus is coming there, and he's landing on the shore, and, and the demon-possessed guy's like, they, they have to meet. <laughs> it's coming together. I picture the disciples crowding behind Jesus, though, right? This guy has a reputation. He breaks chains. He really hurts people. The, guy, the disciples are like, dude, dude, there he is. He's coming. He's coming. You know, seeing him come. And, and then I, I picture one of them being like, you know, Simon, get your knife. Get your knife. He goes, I didn't bring a knife. Zealots always have knives. Come on, man. And, and, and somebody's going, you know, Peter, grab an oar, man. And, and Andrew, get the net. And he's going, the net's not going to hold him. He breaks chains. It's going to be like spaghetti noodles, man. I mean, they're all bunched up going, here he comes. You've you got to put yourself in this story a little bit. And somebody sort of mutters, because this is what they were feeling back when Jesus said, let's go to the other side. When you go looking for trouble, trouble comes looking for you. And here it comes. And somebody goes, hey, he's starting to run. Here he comes. You know, and, and, it, and he runs up and boom, down in front of Jesus. And it is confrontation time. What's going to happen? So look at it with me. Chapter 5, um, it gives us the description of the man. Skip down to verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, I don't know if I can do that loud of a voice. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Something like that, probably louder. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
and he began to entreat him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Stop there a minute. Somebody's going, John, keep your oar up. <laughs> Is he going to jump? You know, what's going to happen here? It's this tense, tense moment. And here's what Jesus does. Verse 11, now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Have you guys ever heard pig squeal? How many of you, by show of hands? That is a hideous sound, is it not? Have you ever heard more than one pig squeal at a time? I'm telling you, can you picture 2,000 or so of them going nuts? Absolute pandemonium breaks out. And they're rushing down into the water and they're, I mean, you got to picture this. It's a sick scene. They don't just all run down into the water and be like, oh, dead. They run down into the water and, and they're on each other and trampling each other and they're squealing like mad and they're sucking in the water and they're drowning and it takes a little while and it is loud and it is nasty and it is muddy and it is, whoa, what just happened? I picture one of the disciples exclaiming, those dirty, rotten demons, they're always lying. They didn't intend to stay in those pigs at all. They just went down and killed them all. And I picture somebody else saying, sick, those Gentiles are probably going to come and eat them. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but this is the way my mind works. I picture one of the guys going, Peter. You've ever tasted pork? <laughs> no. You probably would, you dirty tax collector. <laughs> right? And then Peter goes, what's it taste like? Chicken. <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> Look what happens. Verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and out in the country, and the people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened, that was quite the story to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him, Jesus, to depart from their region. Why are the people so afraid? Why are they begging Jesus to get out of town? Hadn't Jesus just kicked butt on a whole legion of demons? Like, wouldn't that be something like, rah, rah, hero, go, man? Somebody should be thanking Jesus for freeing that poor, tortured man. They're afraid. To the contrary, Jesus has just loosed a whole 
herd of demons all over the place. Someone's muttering, that stupid idiot. Now why do you have to go and do that? Now where will they go? Somebody else is going, it was your kid who was demon-possessed last year. And he goes, I know, I had to pay a whole bunch to get that demon to leave and go into that guy. I don't know how exactly that happened. I'm, I'm imagining a little bit. Jesus came and upset the whole balance of power in that region. And instead of rejoicing at the deliverance, the people are afraid. There's this whole herd of demons loose. They're on the rampage. Where are they going to go? Who are they going to get next? There's just one guy that was thankful that Jesus came over to the other side. The guy who's now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Everybody else is terrified. Look at verse 18. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. Like, I don't want to stay with these people. I want to go with you. You're the guy who freed me. You're the guy who kept all, gets the demons away. I don't want him to come back. Whatever, he wants to go. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everybody marveled. They're going, whoa, because he's got a reputation. Everybody knows about this guy. And that's how the story ends. It doesn't seem to be the burden of the gospel writers to follow the story of the demon-possessed man and tell you what all happened. Was he reunited with his family from whom he was estranged? Did he? Nope. We don't get any of that. doesn't tell us his story. Rather, the burden seems to be to show us Jesus and what he's doing in his ministry. We see Jesus absolutely powerful over the forces of darkness, don't we? They can't even stand against him, not even a legion of them. They can't team up on Jesus or anything like that. Not at all. And a man who cannot be restrained by anyone, not even with chains, is released by a word from Jesus. But more than a display of raw power, Jesus intentionally took his disciples with him and put them in that situation. If you recall, it wasn't too much earlier in Jesus' ministry where he called those very same disciples and he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then if you start watching in the Gospels closely, what starts to happen, Jesus begins taking them on what we might call fishing trips, fishing for men trips. And, and they happen in different locations and in different ways, different sizes of groups of people, sometimes in the synagogues preaching the good news as they travel around, sometimes out in the countryside, sometimes by the lake, big crowd, small crowd in the house, but fishing for men, he's, he's showing them what it looks like in real life. And in this particular instance, Jesus intentionally took his disciples to the other side, over there to Gentile country, over there where darkness reigned. And he went and he purposefully stuck his nose in the bear's den. 
I said that the gospel writers didn't follow the story of the man who was delivered, but in sort of a sense they did. I want you to just flip your page over to Mark chapter 7, verse 31 for a moment, because that's the next time that it records Jesus coming to this region. It says, and again, he went out from the region of Tyre. So he'd gone up north to Tyre and Sidon. It says, through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So he comes back down south to the sea and then within the region of the Decapolis. So he goes back over there, back to the eastern shore, back to the Decapolis. And if you start skimming down, what happens next? What happens? He goes back to the Decapolis, then what? He heals people and then feeds this big, huge crowd of people, this 4,000-person crowd. I just want to ask you the question, how do you suppose all those people in the Decapolis heard about Jesus? How could Jesus draw a crowd over there? Any guesses? Maybe. It doesn't tell us. But there was one guy whose life was absolutely transformed by Jesus, and he went all over the Decapolis telling everywhere what Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. And the next time Jesus shows up in the Decapolis, a crowd of 4,000 people gathers. That's the only tidbit we have. That's the only clue we have to know beyond that point in the story. So I want to ask you, Right now, though, what's the point of the story? Why is it in there? What's it for? What's it going to accomplish in our life? Step back for just a moment. Think of it from the big picture. Jesus, in his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, ascension, all of that, that story is the climax of the entire story of the Bible. If you're going to do the plot diagram of the entire story, which we'll talk about in Applied Bible Study Methods next semester for those who haven't done that with me. That's the climax of the entire story of the Bible. We know that the gospel writers are telling us this story of Jesus. He's going to prove that God is here in human flesh. Jesus is. He's going to die that perfect, sinless, sacrificial death in the place of all humanity, fulfilling everything that was pointed to in the entire scriptures that began to promise that there would be a Redeemer coming from Genesis 3.15 on. He's going to fulfill it. Jesus will be raised victorious. He's going to commission his followers then to carry this good news all over the world to make disciples of all nations as his ambassadors. He's going to empower them to do it with his Holy Spirit. Now, in this particular story then, set in that context, set in the Gospels at first, showing us the culmination, the story of Jesus, what is this story doing? I think it's advancing a number of those plot lines in a pretty big way. Number one, the deity of Jesus is clearly on display in this story, is it not? I don't know anybody else who can calm storms with a word, nor deal with a legion of demons in the same way. Did you notice how the demons responded to Jesus, what they did, what they said? Look at that a minute. Jump back there. So 
So he runs up in verse 6, Matthew 5, or Mark 5, 6, and says, crying out with a loud voice, he says, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? That demon knows who he is. Son of the most high God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. The demon knows. Jesus has all the power and the authority to torment him. One of the other gospel writers says, they beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Don't torture us. They know they're defeated in him. They know he's powerful over them. And they have to beg him permission to go into the herd of pigs. And he says, all right, go. So his deity is clearly on display in this text. Secondly, Jesus is advancing his work with his disciples. And you also see that plot line advancing in this text. He's called them to come follow him, and he's going to make them fishers of men. And then one day he goes, hey, guys, let's go to the other side. And they're going, uh-uh, I don't want to. That's all the Gentiles over there. I don't want to go over there. That's where it's unclean. I don't want to go over there. That's where the demon guy lives. And he purposefully leads them to confront this evil and to bring light to this Gentile country that's steeped in darkness. And I really think that the third thing we see is the fact that, that Jesus goes to this Gentile country, as he does in other times as well, shows that his kingdom is not just for the Jewish people. He's pushing that boundary out, and he's going to send them shortly to all nations. But it won't really surprise the disciples when we get to the point where Jesus says, hey, I want you to go to all nations. He's already been sort of doing forays into that with them and showing them what that looks like. In one sense, we could say that when Jesus, quote-unquote, goes to the other side, he was coming for us. I mean, if we're all Gentiles sitting here. Not just the Jewish people, but taking this light to all this darkness that's there. So I say, how should this story impact our lives? And I think, in a sense, we go right back through those same areas, and we look at that, and I would first ask the question, how's your faith doing? I mean, the disciples struggled with their faith, right? Jesus goes, why are you so timid? Where's your faith? When they're out there in the boat, in the storm, and it's crazy, and it's scary, and everybody wants to spiritualize this and go, you know, what's the scary thing you're facing? And you know what? In this particular way, I think without spiritualizing the storm, I'm not going to say, what's your storm, okay? But simply put, where's your faith? And guess what? If you're like me, we're just like the disciples. We are struggling with our faith at times, aren't we? Aren't you afraid of some things? You're afraid to go deal with the situation sometimes. You're afraid to speak up and confess your faith in Christ in different places. So we say, where's our faith? Um, in a sense, you could say, metaphorically, we sort of hear that scream across the lake, and we go, I don't want to go over there. 
secondly, as Jesus intentionally stretched his disciples and called them to follow him to this Gentile country, I am curious where he may be calling some of you to go. Some places that would stretch you too. I think he's still at work in our lives. Everybody agree with that? Okay, if he's still at work in our lives, I think he's going to also tend to stretch us. And some of you are going, oh yeah, I'm feeling that. There's been some stretching happening in my life. I have been preaching to you guys this year, this sort of series of what I've called bold moves that Jesus made. And in, in this story, what I see here is the bold move is being willing to upset the balance of power. Things aren't going to be the same after that. You walk in there and you blow it all up. And that's in what Jesus did going over there. The people of the Decapolis were terrified at the thought of this whole legion of demons on the loose. They begged Jesus to leave. It was a lot more comfortable for them to let one man be the repository of all this evil than for that one man to be released and freed, and now we all have to deal with the aftermath of that. Does that sort of ring true in life? Sometimes if we're going to bring light to darkness, messy stuff is going to follow. Old wounds, perhaps, may be needing to be confronted and dealt with, and that's not fun. It's not easy to do. Maybe prejudices and animosities must be laid aside, and the painful road to restoration are going to have to be walked. Maybe drug lords don't appreciate our infringement on their territory as we bring light to darkness in a very literal sense. Maybe there are porn masters and sex traffickers and child labor bosses and worldly-minded school boards, and on and on the list could go. And when the light and power of Jesus overcomes the evil, this balance of power is upset, and all sorts of things are set in motion that we can't even control. And many times people don't like it. And I know that some of you are going to be leaving yet today or tomorrow and going home even for Thanksgiving, and some of your classmates have already left. And I know that some of you even right now are going to go home and step into a situation where you might just rather leave well enough alone. Let's not touch that. Let's not bring light to that darkness. We don't want to have that conversation. We don't want to go there. Maybe we shouldn't just do some ministry. Maybe we should just let some of these repositories of evil just stay there, and then it's all self-contained, and the balance of power sort of just remains in a family or in a church or in a certain circumstance where we just, let's not touch that. It might be more comfortable to ignore the tortured cries of the demoniac in the darkness. And there I just used that metaphorically. Jesus may lead us into some uncomfortable places. And the bold move that I'm challenging you with today is that in your life you'd be willing to follow him into those. 
even upsetting the balance of power where it needs to happen. I want to pray right now just for your strengthening, um, for all of you, for your classmates who have already gone home, and whatever things you face, I want to ask for your strengthening right now. So, Father, we come before you, and we pray that as followers of Jesus, we would not be people who cower in fear, but that we would be people who are full of faith. Not faith in ourselves or any abilities of ourselves, not faith in our government, not faith in anything but in you, God. You have all power. You rule all things. With you by our side, there is nothing that can shake us, nothing that can stand against us. We don't claim to wield that power at all. We claim to submit to it and follow you. And so, Lord, would you make us bolder as your people? Not bolder in a brash sense, not bolder in a prideful sense, but just in a simple matter of courage to follow you where you would lead, to be an unashamed witness for you, wherever we find ourselves, even unafraid to upset the balance of power in some place where evil seems to be in control. Thank you that when we pray to you for strength and for courage, we know that those are things that you delight to give. So we pray even very specifically right now for friends and classmates, maybe ourselves, who do face some very uh, frightening circumstances, situations that we're not sure how to handle, or we're not sure what will happen. And yet the truth is clear. The gospel is clear. What is right and wrong is clear. So let us be unafraid to speak the truth to do what is right as we follow you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.